This reading is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Stillwater's Revival Books is online at www.puritandownloads.com. The message that I will be reading is from Charles Spurgeon. It was delivered on Sabbath morning, May 20, 1855, at Exeter Hall in England. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Isaiah 43, 25. And there are some passages of sacred writ which have been more abundantly blessed to the conversion of souls than others. They may be called salvation texts. We not are necessarily able to discover how it is or why it is, but certainly it is the fact that some chosen verses have been more used of God to bring men to the cross of Christ than any others in his word. Certainly they are not more inspired, but I suppose they are more noticeable from their position, from their peculiar phraseology, more adapted to catch the eye of the reader, more suitable to a prevailing spiritual condition. All the stars in the heavens shine very brightly, but only a few attract the eye of the mariner and direct his course. The reason is this, that those few stars from their peculiar grouping are more readily distinguished. The eye easily fixes upon them. So I suppose it is with those passages of God's word which especially attract attention and direct the sinner to the cross of Christ. It so happens that this text is one of the chief of them. I have found it in my experience to be a most useful one, for out of the hundreds of persons who have come to me to narrate their conversion and experience, I have found a very large proportion who have traced the divine change which has been wrought in their hearts to the hearing of this precious declaration of sovereign mercy read, and the application of it with power to their souls. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for thine own sake, mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Hence I feel this morning somewhat pleased to have such a text, because I anticipate that my master will give me souls, and I feel likewise somewhat afraid lest I should spoil the passage by my own imperfect handling thereof. I will, therefore, cast myself implicitly on the help of the Spirit, so that whatever I speak may be suggested by him, and whatever he saith that may I speak, to the exclusion of my own thoughts, as much as possible. We shall notice first this morning the recipients of mercy the persons of whom the Lord is here speaking. Secondly, the deed of mercy. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. And thirdly, the reason for mercy, for mine own sake. And fourthly, the promise of mercy. I will not remember thy sins. One, we are about to see who are the recipients of mercy. And I would have you all listen. Peradventure there be some strayed in here who are the very chief of sinners, some who have sinned against light and knowledge, 
who have gone the full length of their powers for sin so that they come here self-condemned and fearing that for them there is neither mercy nor pardon. I am about to talk to you of the loving kindness of our glorious Jehovah. And may some of you be led to read your own condition in those characters which I shall describe to you. Turn to your Bibles. You'll find who are the persons here spoken of. Look, for example, at the 22nd verse of the chapter from which our text is taken, Isaiah 43. And you'll see first that they were prayerless people. Thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob. And are there not some prayerless ones sitting or standing here this morning? Might I not walk along these benches and point my finger to one and another and say, Thou art not a praying one? Or might I not reach out my hand to one and another upon this platform and say, Thou hast not been with God in secret and held heart converse with him? These prayerless ones may have repeated many a form of prayer, but the breathing desire, the living words have not come from their lips. Thou hast lived, sinner, up to this time without sincere prayer. And if an ejaculation has been forced from thy lips from a fear that took hold of thee, if a cry has gone forth from thee when in the sufferings of a sick bed, because the pains of death got hold upon thee, if, if it's not been thy habit to pray, the impressions of that trying period have soon been forgotten. Is prayer your constant practice, my hearers? How many of you now before me, I and behind me too, must confess that you have not prayed? It's not your habit to hold communion with God. Prayerless souls are Christless souls. For you can have no real fellowship with Christ, no communion with the Father, unless you approach his mercy seat and be often there. And yet if you are condemning yourselves and lamenting that this has been your condition, you need not despair, for this mercy is for you. Thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, yet I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake. Next, these persons were <clears throat> despisers of religion. For observe the language of the same verse, Thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. And may I not say to some here, Thou despisest religion, Thou hatest God, Thou art weary of him, And lovest not his services. As for the Sabbath day, Do not too many of you find it the most tiresome day in the week? And do you not, in fact, look over your ledger on the Sabbath afternoon? If you were compelled to attend a place of worship twice on the Sabbath day, would you not think it the greatest and most terrible hardship that could be inflicted upon you? You have to find some worldly amusement to make the hours of the Sabbath day pass away with any comfort at all. So far from wishing that congregations might never break up and the Sabbath last for eternity, is it not to some of you the most tedious day of the week? You feel it to be a weariness and are glad when it's gone. You don't understand the sentiment expressed by the poet, quote, Sweet is the work, my God, my King, to praise thy name, give thanks and sing. 
You know nothing of the pain of banishment from the courts of Zion, whither the sacred tribes repair. When there you don't hold communion with God, rejoicing that the hallowed place has become a Bethel, the house of God, the very gate of heaven, you can never say, quote, My willing soul would stay in such a frame as this and sit and sing herself away to everlasting bliss. Ah, no. Not only is religion unlovely to you, but it's a weariness. But if you're now convinced of this sin and are repenting of it and desire to be delivered from its power, then God speaks to you this morning and says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake. Return to me with unfeigned repentance, and I will have mercy upon you. Note again the character. They've been thankless persons. Thou hast not brought me the small cattle of thy burnt offerings. They've been unthankful. They had their cattle and their flocks all multiplied and increased many fold, but they didn't bring even one of the small cattle to him in return. Thou never gavest him a kid for a burnt offering, but it's been like the swine, regardless of the oak which strews food upon the ground for thee. Thou hast been a carnal, worldly character, receiving a gift, but never thanking the Almighty who caused it to be bestowed, while the little chicken, after it's drunk of the stream, lifts its head as if to thank God who provided the water. Thou hast been fed day by day by an almighty power, yet thou hast never given in return even one of the small cattle of thy flock for a burnt offering. But this is true of some who attend our houses of prayer. They very rarely give to any collection for the cause of God. They're like that man in America of whom someone told us, who boasted that religion had been to him a very cheap thing, costing him only a few cents a year of whom a good man said, The Lord have mercy on your little stingy soul. Now, if a man has no more religion than that, if he has not a religion that will make him generous, he has no religion at all. I thought of that passage last Thursday night while I was preaching, Thou hast brought me no sweet cane with money. God needeth nothing at your hands, but he likes little presents. He loves now and then to receive of your substance. For you know that little as it is in his eyes, comparatively speaking, it is great because it comes from a friend. But some of you have never bought him a sweet cane with your money, never sang a hymn to his praise. You've attributed everything to your good luck. You've boasted that you have obtained everything you've got by the labor of your own hands and that you can say, I have need to thank nobody for what I have. That's been thy spirit. Thou hast given no thanks to God, the God of heaven and earth. Thou hast not glorified him but thyself. And yet the Most High is willing to pardon thy sin in this thing if thou art but unfeignedly penitent and dost sue for forgiveness. For he saith also to you, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. Yet again, these people were a useless people. Neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices, but thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. It is well said, the chief end of man is to glorify God. For that purpose, God made the sun, moon, 
and stars and all his works that they might honor him. And yet how many are there even perhaps among my hearers this morning who have never honored God in their lives? Ask yourselves, what have you done? If you were to write your own history, it'd be little better than that of Belzoni's toad, which existed in the rock for 3,000 years. You may have lived like it, but you've done nothing. What souls have you ever won to the Savior? How has his name been magnified by you? Have you ever served him? How have you ever worked for him? What have you done for God? Have you not been cumberers of the ground, taking the nourishment of the earth where some better tree might have grown and bearing no fruit to the great husbandman, or at least only a few sorry crabs that were not worth his acceptance? For all you have done, the world might as well have never known you. You've not been even so much use as the glowworm, which at least serves to light the steps of the traveler. The world may possibly be glad to get rid of some of you and rejoice when you're gone. Perhaps you've assisted in destroying the souls of those with whom you've been connected in life. You can recollect the time when you led that young man first into the alehouse. You can remember the hour when you swore a most horrible oath. Your child was within hearing and learned to be profane also. You may look upon some souls who are going even now to damnation through your example. And in hell, you may see spirits starting up from their iron beds and hear them shrieking in their woe. Who is it that led me here and caused my soul to be destroyed? Thou art the author of my damnation. Is the indictment true? Will you not be compelled to plead guilty to that charge? Do you not even now repent of your great transgressions? Even if it be so, my master authorizes me to say again, Thus saith the Lord, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions, and will not remember thy sins. Again, there are some of you who may be termed sanctuary sinners, sinners in Zion. These are the worst of sinners. I can usually tell whether inquirers have been the children of pious parents or no, if after a confession of great guilt they feel unable to proceed at the remembrance of what they once were, groaning and sobbing and Tears running down their cheeks are the silent language of their woe. When I see this, I always know that the language that succeeds will be, I have been the child of pious parents, and I feel that I am one of the worst of sinners because I was brought up to religion. And yet I disregarded it and turned aside from it. Oh, yes, the worst of sinners are sinners in Zion. Because they sin against light and knowledge, they force their way to hell, as John Bunyan says, over the cross of Christ. And the worst way to hell is to go by the cross to it. Many of you now before me were consecrated to God by a beloved mother, and your father taught you to read and love the scriptures of truth. You were brought up like Timothy. You well understood the theory of the way of salvation. And yet you come here, young men, some of you enemies to God and without Christ and despisers of his word. Some of you are even scoffers 
or if not actually scoffers, you say religion is nothing to you. And, and by your actions, if not by your words, you declare it is nothing to you that Jesus should die. Ah, when I speak to you, I would not forget myself. Should it ever be my lot to wake up in hell, I should be amongst the most horribly damned there, for I had a most pious training and should be forced to take my place with the sanctuary sinners. And you that are such, whom I am addressing now, are you not afraid? Ask yourselves now, who among us shall dwell with devouring fire? Do you tremble and shake for fear and with a penitent heart desire forgiveness? If so, and then I say again, in my master's name, who spoke nothing but love and mercy to penitent sinners, who said, neither do I condemn thee. Jehovah now declares, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. Yet once more, we have here men who had wearied God. Thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. You see the man who's been a professor of religion and can look back 20 years ago when he was a member of a Christian church. He was apparently walking in the fear of the Lord and all men thought he had received the grace of God in truth. But he's turned aside into the paths of sin. Sometimes his lips have been defiled with oaths, his soul the bondslave of sin. But even now, he's often found in God's house. Sometimes he's affected to tears. He says within himself, Surely I will return to the Lord, for then was it better with me than now. Self-condemned, he stands and weeps in the bitterness of his heart. And mark you, it may be this morning, he stepped into this vast assembly and that his knees are knocking one against the other. Yet it may be that his goodness shall prove like the morning cloud and the early dew that passeth away. Or it may be that the turning point is now come, now or never, as Baxter used to say. Now God or Satan, now accepted or condemned, poor backslider, return to the Lord. He will have mercy upon thee. He'll blot out all thy sins and so blot them out that he will not remember them against thee anymore, forever. These then are the characters who receive mercy. Some of you may say, you seem to think us a bad lot. So I do. Others exclaim, how can you talk to us this way? We're, we're honest, moral, and upright people. If so, then I have no gospel to preach to you. You can go elsewhere, if you will, for you may get moral sermons in scores of chapels if you want them, but I'm come in my master's name to preach to sinners. And so I will not say a word to you Pharisees except this. By so much as you think yourself righteous and holy, by so much you shall be cast out of God's presence at last. Your sentence will be eternal banishment, from the presence of him who has said to every repenting sinner, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions and will not remember thy sins. Two, the second point, the deed of mercy. 
We found out the persons to whom God will give mercy. Now, what is mercy's deed? It's a deed of forgiveness. And in speaking of it, I shall speak first of its being a divine forgiveness. I, even I, am he. Divine pardon is the only forgiveness possible. For no one can remit sin but God only. And it matters not whether a Roman Catholic priest or any other priest shall say in the name of God, I absolve thee from thy transgression. It's abominable blasphemy. If a man has offended me, I can forgive him. But if he's offended God, I cannot forgive him. The only discharge possible is pardoned by God. But then it is the only pardon necessary. Suppose I have so sinned that the king or the queen will not pardon me, that my brethren will not forgive me, and that I cannot pardon myself. If God absolves me, that's all the acquittal that will be necessary for my salvation. Perhaps I stand condemned by the law of my country. I'm a murderer. I must suffer on the scaffold. The queen refuses to pardon, and perhaps she does right in such a refusal. But I don't want her forgiveness in order to enter heaven. If God acquits me, that will be enough. Were I such a reprobate that all men hissed at me and wished me gone from existence, if I knew that they would never forgive my crime, though I ought to desire my fellow creature's forgiveness, well, it would not be necessary that I should have it to enter heaven. If God says, I forgive thee, that's enough. It's only God that can forgive satisfactorily because no human pardon can ease the troubled conscience. The self-righteous Pharisee may be content to give himself into the hands of a priest to be rocked to sleep in the cradle of delusion, but the poor convinced sinner desires something more than the arrogant dictum of a priest 10,000 of them with all their enchantments he feels to be all in vain unless Jehovah himself shall say, I have blotted out thy sins for my own sake. Again, it is a surprising forgiveness for the text speaks as if God himself were surprised that such sins should be remitted. I, even I, it's so surprising that it's repeated in this way, lest any of us should doubt it. It's amazing to the poor sinner when first awakened to his sin and danger. It seems to be too good to be true, and he wonders to feel his own hardness depart. The mercy offered is so overwhelming. It is said that Alexander, whenever he attacked a city, put a light before the gate of it. And if the inhabitants surrendered before the light was burnt out, he would spare them. But if the light went out first, he put them all to death. Our master is more merciful than this. For if he had manifested grace only while a small light would burn, where would we have been? There be some here, 70 or 80 years of age, and God has mercy on you still, but there's a light you know which when once quenched extinguishes all hope of pardon, the light of life. See then, gray-headed man, thy candle is burnt almost to the socket. It has but the snuff left. Seventy years 
You've been living in sin, and yet mercy waits on thee. But thou shalt soon depart. Mark me, there's no hope for thee then. But surprising grace, mercy's message is still proclaiming, quote, for while the lamp holds out to burn, the vilest sinner may return, end of quote. Unutterable mercy. There's no sinner out of hell so black but that God can wash him white. There's not out of the pit one so guilty that God is not able and willing to forgive him. For he declares the wondrous fact, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. Notice once more, it's a present forgiveness. It does not say, I am he that will blot out thy transgressions, but he that blots them out now. There are some who believe, or at least seem to imagine, that it is not possible to know whether our sins are forgiven in this life. We, we may have hope, it is thought, that at last there will be a balance to strike on our side. But this will not satisfy the poor soul who is really seeking pardon and is anxious to find it. And God has therefore blessedly told us that he blots out our sin now, that he will do it at any moment the sinner believes. As soon as he trusts in his crucified God, all his sins are forgiven, whether past, present, or to come. Even supposing that he has yet to commit them, they're all pardoned. If I live 80 years after I receive pardon, doubtless I shall fall into many errors, but the one pardon will avail for them as well as for the past. Jesus Christ bore our punishment, and God will never require at my hands the fulfillment of that law which Christ has honored in my stead. For then would there be injustice in heaven, and that be far from God. It's no more possible for a pardoned man to be lost than for Christ to be lost, because Christ is the sinner's surety. Jehovah will never require my debt to be paid twice. Let none impute injustice to the God of the whole earth. Let none suppose that he will twice exact the penalty of one sin. If you've been the chief of sinners, you may have the chief of sinners forgiveness. God can bestow it now. I cannot help noticing the completeness of this forgiveness. Suppose you call on your creditor and you say to him, I have nothing to pay with. Well, he says, I, I can issue a, a distress against you and place you in prison and keep you there. You still reply that you have nothing, and he must just do what he has to do. Suppose he should then say, all right, I, I'll forgive all. Well, now you stand amazed and you say, can it be possible that you'll give me that great debt of a thousand pounds? He replies, yes, I, I will. But how am I to know it? There's a bond. He takes it and crosses it all out and hands it back to you and says, Okay, there is a full discharge. I have blotted it all out. So does the Lord deal with penitence. He has a book in which all your debts are written, but with the blood of Christ, he crosses out the handwriting of ordinances which is there written against you. The bond is destroyed. He will not demand payment for it again. 
Now, the devil will sometimes insinuate to the contrary, as he did to Martin Luther. Bring me the catalog of my sins, said Luther. And he brought a scroll, black and long. Is that all, said Luther? No, said the devil. He brought yet another. And now, said the heroic saint of God, right at the foot of the scroll, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses from all sin. That's a full discharge. Number three, very briefly, the third thing, the reason for mercy. Says one poor sinner, why should God forgive me? I'm sure there's no reason why he should, for I've never done anything to deserve his mercy. Hear what God says. I am not about to forgive you for your own sake, but for my own sake. But Lord, I shall not be thankful enough. I'm not about to pardon you because of your gratitude, but for my name's sake. But Lord, if I'm taken into thy church, I can do very little for thy cause in future years, for I've spent my best days in the devil's service. Surely the impure dregs of my life cannot be sweet to you, O God. I will not engage to forgive you for your sake, but mine. I don't want you, says God. I, I can do as well without you as with you. The cattle upon a thousand hills are mine. If I pleased, I could create a whole race of men for my service who should be as renowned as the greatest monarchs or the most eloquent preachers. But I can do as well without them as with them. And I forgive you, therefore, for my own sake. Let me add this comment. This is the, the reader speaking, not Charles Spurgeon. The word want, where he says, I don't want you. The word want in older English means need. <laughs> need, not, not love, not desire, but need. Let me continue on. Is there not hope for a guilty sinner here? It cannot be pleaded by anyone that his sins are too great to be pardoned. For the amount of guilt is hereby put entirely out of consideration, seeing that God forgives not on account of the sinner, but for his own sake. Did you never hear of a physician visiting a man upon a sick bed when the poor man said, I have nothing to give you for your attention to me? But says the doctor, I, I didn't ask for anything. I attend you from pure benevolence and moreover to prove my skill. It'll make no difference to me how long you live. I love to try my skill and, and let the world know that I have power to heal diseases. I, I want to get myself a name. <laughs> well, so God says, I desire to have a name for mercy. So the worse you are, the more God is honored in your salvation. Go then to Christ, poor sinner, naked, filthy, poor, wretched, vile, Lost, dead, come as thou art, for there's nothing required in thee except the need of him. This he gives you, tis his spirit's rising beam. For mine own sake, says God, I will forgive. Roman numeral four, number four, to conclude the promise of mercy. And I will not remember thy sins. There are some things which even God cannot do. And though it is true, he is omnipotent. There are things he cannot do. God cannot lie. He cannot forsake his people. He cannot disown his covenant. 
This is one of the things it might be thought he could not do. That is, forget. Is it impossible for God to forget? We finite creatures suffer many things to slip bad memory, but can the Almighty ever do so? That God who counteth the stars and calleth them all by their name, who knoweth how many animal, little animals, tiny animals, insects there are in the mighty ocean, who notices every grain of dust that floats in the summer air and is acquainted with every leaf of the forest, can he cease to remember? Now, perhaps we may answer no, not as to the absolute fact of the committal of the deed, but there are senses in which the expression is entirely accurate. In what sense are do we understand God's forgetfulness of our sins? First of all, he will not exact punishment for them when we come before his judgment bar at last. The Christian will have many accusers. The devil will come and say, that man's a great sinner. I don't remember it, says God. That man rebelled against thee and cursed thee, says the accuser. I don't remember it, says God. For I've said I won't remember his sins. Conscience says, ah, but Lord, it's true. I did sin against thee, and that most grievously. I don't remember that, says God. I said I will not remember his sins. Let all the demons of the pit clamor in God's ear. Let them vehemently shout out a list of our sins. We may stand boldly forth at that great day and sing, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? For God does not even remember their sin. The judge doesn't remember it. Who then shall punish? Unrighteous as we were, wicked as we have been, yet he has forgotten it all. Who then can bring to remembrance what God has forgotten. He says, I will cast thy sins into the depths of the sea, not into the shallows where they might be fished up again, but into the depths of the sea where Satan himself cannot find them. There are no such things as sins recorded against God's people. Christ has so taken them away that sin becomes a non-entity to Christians. It's all gone. And through Jesus' blood, they're clean. The second meaning of this, I will not remember thy sins. There's a father. He has a wayward son who went away that he might live a life of looseness and profligacy. And after a while, he comes home again in a state of penitence. The father says, I will forgive thee. But he says next day to his younger son, there's business to be done at a distant town tomorrow and here's the money for you to do it with he doesn't trust the returned prodigal with it i've trusted him before with money and says the father to himself and he he robbed me makes me afraid to trust him again but our heavenly father says i will not remember thy sins not only forgives the past but trusts his people with precious talents. He never suspects them. He's never one sp suspicious thought in his mind. He, he loves them just as much as if they had never gone astray. He'll employ them to preach his gospel. He'll put them into the Sunday school. He'll make them servants of his son, for he says, I will not remember 
thy sins. Again, he will not remember in his distribution of the recompense of the reward. The earthly parent will kindly pass over the faults of the prodigal, but you know when that father comes to die and is about to make his will, the lawyer sitting by his side, he says, "Mm, I shall give uh, so much to William, who always behaved well, and my other son uh, shall have so-and-so, and and my daughter, she shall have so much, but uh, there is that prodigal. I've uh, I've spent a large sum upon him when he was young, but he, he wasted what he received, Though I've taken him again into favor, and for the present he's going on well, still, I think I must uh, make a little difference between him and the others. I think it would not be fair, though I have forgiven him, to treat him precisely as the rest. And so the lawyer puts him down for a few hundred pounds, while the other perhaps gets their thousands. But God will not remember your sins like that. He gives all an inheritance. He'll give heaven to the chief of sinners as well as to the chief of saints. When he divides the portion to his children, it may be he will put Mary Magdalene as high as he does Peter and the thief as high as he does John. Yea, the malefactor who died on the cross is as much in the sight of God as the most moral person that ever lived. Here's a blessed forgetfulness. What sayest thou, poor sinner? Is thy heart drawn by a mysterious inspiration to the foot of the cross? Then I thank my master. For I trust the one object of my life is to win souls for Christ. And if I may be blessed in that, my life shall be happy. Still do you say my sins are too great to be forgiven? Nay, but, O man, as high as the heaven is above the earth, so great is his mercy above thy sins. So far does his grace exceed thy thoughts. Oh, but sayest thou, he will not accept me. What then is the meaning of this text he is able to save unto the uttermost? Or or this, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And, and again, whoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. Do you still say, this does not include me? Oh, be not so faithless, but rather believe. Oh, had I the power, God knows I would weep myself away in order to win your souls. But feeble our compassion proves and can but weep (coughs) where most it loves. I can do nothing but preach God's gospel. But since the moment Christ forgave me, I cannot help speaking of his love. I turned away from his gospel. I would have none of his reproofs. I cared not for his voice or his word. That blessed Bible lay unread. These knees refused to bend in prayer, and my eyes looked on vanity. Has he not pardoned? Has he not forgiven? Yes. Then sooner may this tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth than cease to proclaim free grace in all its mighty displays of electing and redeeming and pardoning and saving mercy. Oh, how loud ought I to sing, seeing I am out of hell and delivered from condemnation. And if I am out of hell, why shouldn't you be? Why should I be saved and not another? It was for sinners, remember, that Jesus came. Mary Magdalene, Saul of Tarsus, the very chief of sinners, they were all accepted. Why do you foolishly conclude that you are cast out? Oh, poor penitent, if you perish, you'll be the first penitent who ever did so. God give you his blessing, my dear friends, for Christ's sake. Amen. 
Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.